Cage, 3650, Physiology of Exercise Lecture, Tuesday, November 16th, 2010, Pulmonary Fundamentals and Ventilation. All right, let's talk about schedule a little bit. Um, we're getting down to it. I'm used to having a couple of weeks after the break, but uh, um, it's not the case. We're down to, including today, four class sessions left. So, I love that. Yay! Um, okay, so what I want to do is uh, I'm going to push female athlete triad down here. Uh, hopefully, if we get some time on the last day, we'll, we'll go through that one. But I want to get going with pulmonary system. So we'll do pulmonary system uh, today and Thursday. Uh, then we're off next week. So then when we come back on the following Tuesday, we'll try to get uh, diffusion in. Uh, and then the last day of class, we'll hit altitude, kind of wrap things up with some performance issues. Uh, and if we have time, we'll talk about female athlete triad. Uh, we will have our last quiz on the final day. <coughs> Excuse me. I got a ton of stuff to get back to you guys. I got quiz, got the article, got the exam. So I'm going to be busy for the next week or so uh, trying to get that stuff done so you all know where you stand as we go in towards last week. Um, final exam, we will keep on this date and it will be different than what we have done for the other two exams. Uh, we will take the final exam in here. Um, so it is scheduled for this room from 1045 to 115 on the 14th. Um, we'll talk about that last day of class too so there are some differences with the final exam. Questions? Are we doing anything more with the articles? Um, I'm working on that third article. Things have gotten pushed so late. I don't, I don't want to really jam you guys with something excessive towards the end. Um, yeah, that's... Uh, <laughs> here, here. <laughs> but I got a little bit of time to think about it. <laughs> you concur with that one. Uh, I will let you know that there is, those of you who have asked about extra credit or do I drop a quiz grade or that kind of thing, I don't drop quiz grades, but what I do is there is an additional quiz that you can take that will be an online quiz that will be available to you uh, the last week of classes, okay, that is worth 10 points. So if you'll go on take the quiz, um, it basically is a, a 10 points added to your total point total. Okay? So I'll, I'll alert people via email, but also will let you know in class when that is available. Okay? So otherwise I don't drop other... <coughs> excuse me. So if you've... If you missed class a day that we had a quiz and you missed a quiz, uh, this one can just take the place of that one. Um, if you've made all the quizzes, but you've got a, a grade or two that's not so good, uh, it's just added to it, so it helps helps your grade there a little bit. Okay? Um, all right, other questions? Those weren't questions, those were high fives. Okay. All right, so let's... get going with the pulmonary system. And just like with the cardiovascular system, this, this section of the pulmonary system should be 
uh, a good bit of review from your basic physiology courses um, with some things that are specific to exercise uh, kind of thrown in. Just like we had with our, pul- with our cardiovascular system whose main function or job was to deliver oxygen, the main job or function of the pulmonary system is to get oxygen in from the environment into the body. Okay, So it's gas exchange with the environment. We obviously get rid of CO2 uh, as well, but its main function really is to get oxygen in so that the cardiovascular system can then uh, distribute it throughout the body. It does do a variety of different things for us, helps us maintain acid-base balance, Uh, it actually activates some hormones, um, helps us thermoregulate to a certain degree, helps significantly with immune function, so there's a variety of other things that the pulmonary system does for us, but the main thing is gas exchange. All right, in terms of our functional anatomy, we're going to start out here with our external nares or our nostrils and our mouth. Uh, We've got our nasal cavity and oral cavity that join back here in the pharynx. So the pharynx comes down and uh, bifurcates. This is one of these, um, uh, if you were designing a, a biological organism for function, I think the human body is designed pretty well. This is one of these design elements that's a little bit puzzling as to why you would have uh, where you would take in something such uh, 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 crucial as air or oxygen, but also take in food and fluid through the same set of tubes is a little bit puzzling. Uh, but here's the point of, of demarcation right here, um, where air is going to go down towards the lung through the larynx, the trachea, the bronchi, etc. Um, but then we've got a bifurcation where we've got the esophagus that goes down towards the stomach. And we know we've got this flap of tissue um, here, this epiglottis, that when we swallow will go to close off the, the pathway down through the larynx so that we can direct food and fluid down the esophagus towards the stomach. Uh, we know that's a, uh, a bit problematic because there can be times where objects get lodged in there and then cause great difficulty with trying to uh, get uh, air into our lungs. Okay. So as we move down through the larynx, uh, as we get into the chest, we've, we uh, see it turns into the trachea. The trachea is sort of marked by these cartilaginous rings because we're, we're going to see big pressure changes in the trachea or in the uh, uh, chest, in the thorax. Uh, we've got these cartilaginous rings that help keep that trachea, that tube, from collapsing when these pressure changes. Uh, so the trachea comes down and then bifurcates into the right and left uh, bronchus. From this point onward, we get uh, further and further and further branches down into smaller and smaller and smaller tubes. Okay, um, And this branching network of tubes goes down from trachea to our two main bronchi to bronchioles. And then these bronchioles go down to what are referred to as terminal bronchioles and then respiratory bronchioles. And then when we uh, get to the end of these respiratory bronchioles, we have these sort of uh, blind end, uh, small, thin-walled sacs called our alveoli. So we get down here um, to where we get to the terminal bronchiole, which is the last branch. 
Then we've got our uh, respiratory bronchioles that feed into these. It's kind of a, a bunch of grapes looking uh, uh, structure, these alveoli. And the purpose of these are they have very thin walls and there's lots of small structures to dramatically increase surface area for gas diffusion. Okay, so here's a cast of human lungs uh, starting up here with the trachea and the right and the left bronchi. They've dissected away all the uh, alveolar tissue so you can actually see the branching network. Um, there's something like 17 branches uh, starting here, so 17 levels of branches on down to these uh, small uh, terminal bronchioles. Okay, well these alveoli uh, have some very specific characteristics that help us make the lungs a very good gas exchange organ. Uh, what we see in this uh, depicted here, this forms the interstitial tissue which forms the framework, the tissue framework of our alveoli. Uh, then you've got this open space here, this air-filled space in the alveoli. There's a very dense capillary network. Well, first of all, you've got um, blood flowing from the heart into the lungs, and so we've got pulmonary arteries and arterioles bringing blood supply to the lungs. Uh, then it branches down into this capillary network, and you can see these are embedded in this interstitial tissue, and they're very close in proximity to the edge of the uh, alveolus, the alveolar wall. Then as blood flows through these pulmonary capillaries, they're going to collect in pulmonary venules and veins, and so here we've got a pulmonary vein that is collecting blood now headed back towards the left side of the heart. We've also got lymphatic vessels embedded in this interstitial tissue uh, that help with both uh, removal of excess fluid and also assist in our um, uh, immune function. Okay. All right, here's an electron micrograph uh, of that same sort of uh, setup. And so over here what we've got is a pulmonary arteriole, like a pulmonary artery and arteriole and then all of this white sort of mesh looking uh, uh, structure are pulmonary capillaries and then they will feed into pulmonary venules and collect into pulmonary veins and head back towards uh, the left side of the heart. Okay, So very dense capillary network uh, across these alveoli. Um, the other main characteristic is that these alveoli the alveolar wall and the pulmonary capillary wall is very thin and has very little interstitial tissue between the two. Okay, so here we've got our alveolus over here. Here we've got a pulmonary capillary over here. And so we've got the, the wall of the alveolus, which is essentially one cell thick. And we've got the wall of the pulmonary capillary, and it's essentially one cell thick. And then there's very little space or tissue between the two because thickness of membranes dramatically affects gas diffusion. And it's inverse. If you increase the thickness of the tissue, the ability of gases to cross those membranes goes down. Okay, so increased thickness means a decrease in diffusion. So in this case, our lungs are constructed so that we have very thin membranes and there's very little space between them. 
The second thing that affects is uh, total distance, that if this is a wide pulmonary capillary and you've got a red blood cell over here somewhere, then these oxygen molecules have to travel a further distance. Greater distance means a decrease in diffusion. So what happens is these pulmonary capillaries are very narrow and these red blood cells literally have to line up uh, and, and squeeze through these pulmonary capillaries. So thin membranes, thin membranes, and short distance. Okay, as we see in this next uh, micrograph, this is an electron micrograph of lung tissue. So here's an alveolus over here. Here's one over here. This is interstitial tissue like this right here. And we've got a pulmonary capillary running right through here like this. You can see it is so thin that the, you can clearly make out the shape of red blood cells, of erythrocytes, that literally have to line up and squeeze their way through these pulmonary capillaries. So that provides a very thin membrane and a very short distance for oxygen molecules to travel. Okay? Um, we've got some other cells in here. Again, here's our interstitial tissue. Here's our alveolus. Um, here's our capillary with those red blood cells coming through it. Uh, here is a white blood cell, a leukocyte. Uh, very important, you know, we'll talk about immune function a little bit more in a second. Lungs play an important role because it is one dramatic avenue of entrance for uh, things into the body that may uh, uh, cause us to get sick. And so our immune system has to be prepared with white blood cells or leukocytes. Uh, these are alveolar macrophages or cells that make their way around inside the alveoli that can attack and, and destroy uh, other invading types of cells. We also have these type 2 alveolar cells up here that make and secrete a substance called surfactant. And it is a, almost a detergent-like fluid that lines the inside of the alveoli and it almost makes them like a soap bubble, okay, like a detergent. And what that does is it helps keep these small alveoli from collapsing, okay. It reduces surface tension and allows these alveoli to remain open so that we can uh, ventilate them. All right, so... Essentially, what these things do is add up to the lungs being a uh, near-ideal gas exchange organ. All of those small branches and branching down into small groups of alveoli provide a dramatic amount of surface area for gas diffusion. If you were able to take the alveolar surface that's available for gas exchange and spread it out flat on the ground, an average size adult human would have somewhere in the neighborhood of about uh, 200 meters of square, uh, square meters available for diffusion, which is the, about the size of a tennis court. Okay? So you've got lots of available uh, surface area for diffusion. We've got very thin membranes. We've got a very short distance between the alveoli and those uh, pulmonary capillaries or red blood cells and there's a very dense capillary network. Right. What this is all leading up to is we see a variety of different things that limit human performance. Okay? 
um, potentially your maximal heart rate or your mac more likely your maximal cardiac output may limit aerobic exercise performance. Um, your percentage of type 2 muscle fiber may limit your aerobic exercise performance. One of the things that we see is that the lungs very rarely, and it's only in certain circumstances, the lungs typically do not limit our aerobic exercise performance. Or exercising at, at, uh, at or near our VO2 max, it feels like we can't get enough air because we're gasping for air, you're breathing very heavily, but in fact you're getting an adequate amount of air. And we'll, we'll look at some of the specific reasons uh, why we know that. All right, we tend to look at the, the pulmonary system in um, functional zones. And the first part's often referred to as the conducting zone. All right, unlike the cardiovascular system, cardiovascular systems, everything is one way. Okay, pulmonary system is two way. Air goes in one way and back out the same tubes. Okay? Um, the tubes, essentially, from your nose and your mouth, all the way down to those terminal bronchioles are what's referred to as the conducting zone. The function there is basically just to provide the pipes to, to allow air to get down into the areas where, where you have gas exchange. So you're just conducting the air in and then back out again. Right? So no gas exchange. You can kind of think of it as, as you take a breath, you're taking in a column of air some of that air is only going to make it as far as your trachea. Okay? And so it sits in a part of the pulmonary system where there's no gas exchange. And so when you exhale, you blow that air right back out again. That's what's often referred to as dead space ventilation because that air is going into the conducting zone and going right back out again. So no gas exchange. Um, <clears throat> In textbooks, you also often see it referred to as the respiratory zone. I like to refer to it as the diffusion zone because that's really what's happening um, is diffusion or gas exchange. And that's the area that's over here in the little darker pink color. And that's a little bit in the respiratory bronchioles and down here in the alveoli. Okay? So when you take in air, trachea, bronchioles, terminal bronchioles, no gas exchange. You get down here to the respiratory bronchioles, you get a, some gas exchange there, and alveolar, uh, these alveolar sacs or uh, alveoli, gas exchange. Okay, so this is our diffusion zone. This is our conducting zone over here. <coughs> okay. Um, because the lungs are constructed to be very good gas exchange organs, it also makes them susceptible to damage. You've got these alveoli that have very thin walls, and they're very susceptible to being dried out, and they're very susceptible to other types of infection. So we've got to protect them in some way. The first way that we protect these, these delicate tissues is we condition the air that we breathe. So when you breathe in air, it is at room temperature and has whatever content of moisture is, is in the ambient air. 
uh, unless that is close to 100% relative humidity, that air is going to have uh, be relatively dry and there's going to be the tendency to dry out those delicate tissues in your lungs. So what we want to do is we want to add moisture to that air that we breathe in. And so when you breathe that air in, your, your conducting zone adds moisture to the air. So by the time it gets down to the lungs, it is 100% humidified. Okay? We add water vapor to the air that we breathe in so that it uh, is moist and tends not to dry out those lung tissues. The other thing we do is that we try to stabilize the temperature of the air that we breathe in. So you will add heat to it. Okay, as you breathe it in, it comes in contact with these, all these various tubes and it warms the air. So by the time the air gets down to your alveoli, it is warmed to body temperature and it is 100% humid. Okay, and that's to protect. Now, if the air that we breathe was just air, we'd be fine, but there's all kinds of stuff in the air that you breathe. Okay, there's all kinds of uh, particulate matter. Okay, all you have to do is walk down the sidewalk while somebody's got one of those leaf blowers, right? And creating a huge cloud of particulate matter. Um, and so you breathe that stuff in. There's dirt and dust and all kinds of other little uh, particulate matter. What else is in the air that we breathe? Smoke? What else? What other gases might be in there? Nitrogen. Well, nitrogen's the main gas in there that we breathe. What other? Could be some carbon dioxide. We, we uh, either live and or certainly spend some time in uh, a large metropolitan area. So what else is in the air? Carbon monoxide, sulfur dioxide, okay, other elements of, of smog, um, other emissions. What else? What else might be in the air that you breathe? that you might particularly be susceptible to right around the time winter gets started. There's pollen is one, that, but bacteria and viruses, okay? Those also are in the air that we breathe, and uh, the, the respiratory ailments are, you know, our main way, respiratory or pulmonary system is a main way that some of these bacteria and viruses get into our body, okay? So we want to try to protect. Um, <clears throat> One of the ways that we protect is by having a system but we can actually sort of trap and remove uh, these different foreign elements. Um, uh, in that, and we do that by this respiratory epithelium I'm going to talk about in a second. Then we also have, as I mentioned just a minute ago, these, these macrophages, these types of cells that are found down in our alveoli. So if things happen to get past our respiratory epithelium, then these alveolar macrophages can attack these things and, and try to, if they're, particularly if they're viruses or bacteria, try to attack them and remove them. Okay, um, let's talk about this respiratory epithelium. Essentially what you have lining the walls of the pulmonary system, the, the, the breathing tubes, uh, if you will, um, you essentially have it in the uh, nasal cavity, the nasal pharynx, then this respiratory epithelium disappears and it picks up again in the trachea and goes down through the bronchioles. Okay, the reason you don't find it in the mouth and in the um, uh, 
larynx too much is, or in the, uh, um, yeah, the larynx is because food is going down, food and fluid, and it would destroy this. Okay? So basically what happens is this. You've got this um, kind of uh, basement, uh, well, here's the basement membrane. You've got this epithelium, this, this, this layer of epithelial cells that line the inside of these tubes. Um, in this tissue right here, well, let me go back. These epithelial cells have little hair-like projections, have cilia that project into the lumen of the tube. And these cilia uh, beat in an upward fashion very rapidly. Okay. You've also got these goblet cells or mucus glands or mucus cells that synthesize and secrete mucus. And this little layer of mucus lines up right on, forms a layer right on top of these epithelial cells. Okay. And so the idea is this. If you're breathing in and you've got some particulate matter or a bacterium or a virus, as this air flows and, and let's say the mouth nose is over here, this is headed down towards the alveoli over here. This particulate matter is breathed in and at some point if it comes in contact with the wall uh, of the trachea, the bronchioles, etc., uh, it essentially becomes lodged in this mucus and these cilia cells sweep this mucus layer and this material uh, up and out. Okay? So sometimes referred to as like a ciliary escalator. Okay? It's constantly moving upward and outward and this kind of forms a mechanical barrier. It's a um, it's not really part of our immune function but it's sort of like a mechanical barrier in that if things get you know come in contact with and get stuck in this mucus we can move uh, these things up and out. All right, here's an electron micrograph of nice, healthy uh, respiratory epithelium. So you can see these epithelial cells, uh, nice, regular alignment of epithelial cells. Okay, here are these goblet cells right here, and these are the ones that um, uh, secrete mucus onto the surface up here. And these cilia cells, you know, move this, this kind of sheet of, of mucus up and out. Now, one of the most damaging things you can do <clears throat> is, is smoking. And this is not only cigarette smoking, but also people that are uh, um, exposed to other types of smoke, like firefighters that are exposed to... to um, uh, Excuse me. Smoke is a part of their occupation, but there's there's two big problems. One is acute. The act of smoking, due to some of the chemicals that are in the cigarette smoke, but also the fact that they're the smoke is very hot, um, causes a decrease in cilia movement. Okay, so it suppresses the movement of the cilia, but at the same time, this smoke is. Uh, hot and irritating and so in order to protect the tubes what happened is your uh, goblet cells start to secrete more mucus and in effect to coat our breathing tubes with more mucus to protect from this hot smoke and so at the same time we both increase mucus secretion but we also reduce the action of those cilia cells to get the mucus up and out. Now 
If you continue, continue this over long periods of time, what happens is the cilia cells actually start to disappear and they're replaced by a different type of non-functional cell, which is called a, a flat squamous cell. So we lose the little hair-like projections. We don't lose all of them, but you lose a large number of those hair-like projections. These goblet cells, just like other tissues in the body, if you constantly stimulate them, okay, if you chronically stimulate your bicep by lifting weights, what will happen with your bicep? It hypertrophies. It gets stronger and it gets bigger. If you constantly stimulate these uh, mucus cells, these goblet cells, you know, by exposing, by exposing the body to this hot, irritating smoke, you secrete more mucus, these mucus cells uh, actually hypertrophy and you start to produce uh, an excess amount of uh, uh, mucus. Come back to that. Here's an electron micrograph of a chronic smoker's respiratory epithelium. Okay, as you can see, there's lots of inflammation. There's a, quite a bit of disruption of this respiratory epithelium. And then look at these goblet cells compared to the ones in the, in the previous slide. Very hypertrophied. I'm not even sure what this is. <laughs> but it doesn't look good. <laughs> Whatever it is. Can't you show us color? What's that? Color. No color. Okay. No color version? No, I don't have a color version, no. Um, all right, so what basically happens in this idea of this, um, uh, one, one of the defining characteristics of chronic smokers is this cough. And essentially what has happened is you have hypertrophied these mucus-producing goblet cells, so you produce a lot more mucus, but at the same time you've dramatically altered your ability to move that mucus up and out so you can't do it by movement of the cilia cells. So coughers, uh, coughers, <laughs> smokers attempt to do it by coughing. Okay, they generate air pressure <coughs> to try to move this mucus out, and so that's where this chronic or persistent cough comes from um, with smokers. Okay. All right, so as we go through the pulmonary system, we're going to talk about um, two sort of functional mechanisms, if you will, with the pulmonary system. The first is ventilation. And ventilation is simply getting uh, an adequate amount of air in the body and then getting that air back out so you can get the next amount of air in again. Okay? In order to get an adequate amount of oxygen in the body, you've got to move air in, give it an opportunity to, to do the next part, which is diffusion, and then you've got to get air out of the lungs and refresh that air with a, a new breath. So that simply is the process of ventilation. Again, recognize that there is this conducting zone that the air that stays up in this upper part of our pulmonary system when we breathe doesn't participate in gas exchange. Only the part that gets down into the alveoli or those uh, uh, respiratory bronchioles actually participates in the gas exchange. Okay, so the second functional thing we'll talk about is diffusion and Diffusion is getting then 
the oxygen molecules from the alveoli across into the body, into the blood, and getting carbon dioxide from the blood across into the alveoli so it can go out when you exhale. So two, two major um, mechanisms that we're going to uh, explore. All right, so that's our sort of review on our fundamentals. And we'll go ahead and move on to ventilation. I got too far ahead of you, didn't I? That's all right. You can uh, you can take notes without having the PowerPoint, right? Or is that a is that a lost uh, is that a lost art? <laughs> Probably. Probably don't have any, even have any paper other than the <laughs> printout, right? All right? Well, this one's on you, Learn, so you can you can go get it. Um, okay, so that we just talked about ventilation diffusion. We're going to talk about ventilation for a few minutes. <clears throat> All right. First thing to do is to look at lung volumes. Um, uh, and, and make sure we're all square, we're all on the same page in terms of our, our terminology. And we know that we can measure the amount of air going in and coming out uh, with a spirometer and look at how these uh, lung volumes change. First thing to look at is this term that we call tidal volume. And so it's just like you know being at the beach, it's like the tides. Comes in, goes back out. Comes in, goes back out. So at rest, we've got this sort of pattern uh, like this over here, where we breathe in, pause, and then we breathe out. We breathe in, we pause, and then we breathe out. And so the amount of volume of air that we're either breathing in or we're breathing out, we refer to as our tidal volume. Okay, That is the size, if you will, uh, the volume of one breath. Now, recognize that when we're looking at pulmonary volumes, you can either measure it going in or you can measure it coming out. Okay? But it's the measurement is either one or the other. It's not the combination of the two. Okay? All right. So we we breathe in, we breathe out. We breathe in, we breathe out. So this volume right here, this amount is referred to as tidal volume, and that's the size of an individual breath. <coughs> Here's our scale over here. And, well, and that's in cubic centimeters, but we could also make this um, uh, milliliters. And that's pretty accurate because what's normal for an average size adult, what's probably normal for an average size adult at rest, is about a half a liter or 500 milliliters. Okay, so breath size is about half a liter. Let me see your Gatorade bottle right there. What's that? Okay, so it's about that volume right there. A typical size breath at rest, breathing in, about a half a liter. Breathe out, about a half a liter. Breathe in, about a half a liter. 
Okay, so that bottle volume is about 500 milliliters. A little bit less, actually, but it's pretty close. <coughs> okay, I'm going I'm to skip this part over here for right now and just jump to this one. Now, notice, you can, you're breathing in, breathing out, breathing in, breathing out, breathing in, breathing out. That's just normal pattern at rest. Now, you can take in... <gasps> suck in a maximal amount of oxygen or air. So you're taking in the, the maximum amount of air that you can. When you suck in every last air molecule that you can, you are at your total lung capacity. You've, you've filled your lungs with as much air as is possible. So you are at total lung capacity. Maximal inspiration. Then there's a test that we have people do, a pulmonary test, where we have them blow out as much air as possible. Okay, so we're at maximal inspiration up here, and we blow out as much air as possible. And so you squeeze out every last little air molecule that you can, and what happens, what we know is that you can't blow out all the air that's in your lungs. There's always a little bit left in there. That's referred to as our residual volume. You cannot voluntarily exhale all of the air in your lungs. You have some residual volume. This volume, where we have gone from maximal inspiration down to maximal expiration, so that volume right there is referred to as the vital capacity. Okay, vital capacity. You can easily do this test yourself by sucking in as much air as you can all the way until you can't take in any more air and then blow air out as much as you can until you can't push out any more air. That'll get you down to your residual volume and that amount of air that you exhaled is your vital capacity. It is theoretically the biggest breath you can take, right? Because you've gone from, to maximal inspiration to maximal expiration. It's the biggest single breath you can take. Okay. Uh, and so, as we can see, if you take your vital capacity, your single biggest breath, and you add to it the residual volume, that gives you your total lung capacity. Okay? Your total lung capacity. This can be measured, this residual volume, but it's difficult to do. And so, what happens in a lot of cases uh, is we can measure this pretty easily by having a spirometer... You have people take a maximal inspiration, they exhale into the spirometer, uh, maximal exhalation, and the spirometer measures this volume. Then there are some prediction equations out there that we can predict what the residual volume is. What do you think is the physical characteristic is probably most closely associated with a person's lung size? What physical characteristic is probably most closely associated with a person's lung size? Height. Okay? Bigger people have bigger lungs. Okay? So lung, lung size is mostly a function of body size. Height. Height. Yeah, not exactly. And in fact, there's, there's pretty good evidence that, that over fatness or obesity actually decreases lung function. Okay? Because uh, particularly if it's more uh, trunk obesity, that it actually causes some compression of the lungs and inhibits lung, lung function. So it's mostly height. And in fact, most of the good prediction equations for predicting residual volume 
as a predictor uses height. The other thing it uses in a lot of people is age because as we get older, our lung tissue gets a little stiffer. It's not quite as extensible. And so while, while our lungs t are still the same size, we can't really expand them as much as we could when we were younger. So as we get older, this, this value actually goes down some. Okay? With people who typically don't use their lungs to a great extent, i.e. through exercise. Okay. <clears throat> um, so we've got some of these terms on here. Uh, for right now, don't worry about inspiratory reserve or expiratory reserve. That's, that's fine. You don't need to worry about those. So it's just showing that our total lung volume is equal to our vital capacity plus our residual volume. Okay. In the cardiovascular system, we had a very specific equation. Q with a dot over it, which stands for cardiac output is equal to heart rate times stroke volume. Okay? We have an exactly analogous uh, equation in the pulmonary system. And it's this equation right here. V with a dot over it, E, is equal to respiratory rate times tidal volume. Okay? So this, this term is what's called minute ventilation. Minute ventilation. And just like cardiac output, it is expressed in liters per minute. Liters per minute. Now, this is, again, recognize that in a pulmonary system, you can measure air going in or you can measure air coming out. It is very common in exercise science to measure the air coming out. So we give it the subscript E for expired. Okay, so this is V for volume. The dot gives it a, a, a volume per unit time. And this is expired. So this is how much air you're moving in liters per minute. So it's analogous to cardiac output. Respiratory rate, uh, pretty simply, is the number of breaths per minute and tidal volume. So we, again, we've got the V standing for volume and the subscript T stands for tidal. So this is the size of each breath. We've got the exact same situation. We tend to refer to tidal volume or express it in milliliters, but then we've got to convert it to liters because we, when we get to minute ventilation, we talk about that in liters. What is very common at rest for an adult to breathe uh, 12 to 15 times a minute is pretty common for number of breaths per minute at rest. A very common um, size of breath or tidal volume for kind of an average size adult is about a half a liter or 500 milliliters. So if you multiply 0.5 liters times 15 breaths per minute, you get about seven and a half liters per minute of minute ventilation. So let's think about what that means. In order for your body to get enough air in, to get enough oxygen in, and to get enough air out to get rid of carbon dioxide, 
we've got to breathe in and breathe out about seven and a half liters of air every 60 seconds. Okay? And that'll change slightly depending on a person's body size or some other things, but it's uh, about right in that ballpark. Okay? Now, you can, you've got a very specific pattern. And unlike heart rate and stroke volume, is ventilation under voluntary control? Is it somewhat under voluntary control? Is, is, is heart rate or stroke volume under any voluntary control, really? No. Is ventilation somewhat under voluntary control? Yes. Yeah. You, you, can, you can choose to hold your breath. Uh, you know, and like my kids tried. They had the, the misfortune of having a physiologist for a father because I'm going to hold my breath and you Fine, go ahead. <laughs> it, it, it is under voluntary control for a certain period of time. Okay, and, and then there's some involuntary control. Um, but uh, can you alter your breath size and number of breaths per minute? Yes. Do you usually have to think about that? No. no. But can you do it voluntarily if you want? Right. Sure. Okay. So um, let's see if this was also accurate on this one back here. Let's go back. Uh, that's from about a thousand to yeah. Okay, this vital capacity right here goes from a little over a thousand up to about uh, uh, six thousand. So it's a little bit less than five thousand cubic centimeters, a little less than than five liters uh, for a vital capacity. Probably more uh, for an average sized person, three and a half to four liters of, of vital capacity is probably normal. Um, but let's say, uh, okay, so let's say this person can get, um, you know, four liters for their vital capacity. That's the single biggest breath size they can take, right? So if their resting air movement requirement is seven and a half or so liters per minute, and we can do four liters with one breath, you could get by by breathing how many times a minute? If this is, if this is seven and a half, and you can get four liters just in one breath, you could breathe twice a minute, right? You just take two really, really big breaths, okay? Conversely, let's say we don't want to do that. Why don't, why don't we want to take really big breaths when we're at rest? How come you don't want to take vital capacity size breaths. Is it easy to do? No, it takes some effort. Okay, the more you expand the lungs, the more difficult it is to do so because these, the lung tissue is elastic. Okay, it resists being deformed. You've also got other tissues that you've got to move out of the way. You've got ribs that you've got to move. You've got muscles uh, that are sitting on top of these ribs that have to be moved. You have abdominal contents that have to be moved out of the way. So the, the, to expand your lungs to a larger size requires more effort. Okay, so we don't want to do that. So let's say instead we'll take breaths that are maybe 50, you know, uh, or maybe 100, 
Okay, we'll take breaths that are 100 milliliters. We'll take little small breaths so that, but then if you take breaths that are 100 milliliters, how many times a minute do you have to breathe? 75. Does that make sense? No. So we find some pattern that's in between. Now dogs will do that when they get hot in the summertime. They go over and lay in the shade and they breathe really rapidly. Okay. But is that a, does that disrupt their gas exchange? Do they pass out? No. Why not? Well, they're doing it because they don't have sweat glands. So they do it to thermoregulate. Okay. It doesn't disrupt their... Um, uh, uh, gas balance because those little small breaths you take in just go into here and then you exhale and they go right back out again. So does much or any of that air actually get down into the gas exchange area? No. So panting like that ventilates dead space. Okay. So it just ventilates dead space. With dogs what they do is they take that small breath in that air is warmed by their body temperature and they blow that warm air right back out and so it takes heat with it. So they use it as a, as a thermoregulation. Okay. Well, basically what happens is we find some kind of reasonable pattern between breath size and number of breaths that gives us the right amount of air for gas exchange. Okay? <clears throat> oh, here we go again. All right. If you breathe 15 times a minute, that's 60 minutes an hour times 24 hours a day. If you just lay on the couch all day, you're going to breathe in excess of 20,000 times. Okay? So in excess of 20,000 breaths a day to make sure that we get enough air in to bring in oxygen for gas exchange and to get rid of enough air, to breathe enough air out to get rid of carbon dioxide. If we're breathing each time at rest about a half a liter or 500 milliliters, we're moving in excess of 10,000 liters of air a day. Okay? And that's just if you're sitting at rest and not being physically active. Okay? So we move pretty large volumes of air as the day goes along. Okay. <clears throat> just like we did with the cardiovascular system, we looked at responses to steady-state exercise from rest to steady-state exercise. So here's minute ventilation. We're sitting here at rest at around you know seven, eight liters per minute. We start exercising and we're going to see a rise in minute ventilation. Okay? If this is steady-state exercise, we get an increase in oxygen consumption and we get an increase in carbon dioxide production. So we will increase our minute ventilation to bring in more air, to bring in more oxygen, and also to increase our expiration to get rid of some of that carbon dioxide that we're producing. Okay, so if this is steady state exercise, we will see a steady state in minute ventilation. Okay? Now, um, we see breathing frequency go up and then reach some kind of steady state. And we see tidal volume go up and reach a steady state. Okay?
So just like we saw the cardiovascular system, from rest, we're going to increase. And if the exercise is steady intensity, we're going to see a steady state at a level that will provide enough ventilation to get the uh, gas exchange job done. Okay, now let's do, let me jump to this one. So now this will be response of the pulmonary system to exercise from rest up to maximal exercise. Okay? So this is increasing exercise intensity. So this is oxygen consumption. So we're going to see oxygen consumption go up as the exercise intensity goes up. So this is a max test. And over here we've got minute ventilation. Okay, minute ventilation. So it looks something like this. Okay, these are results from a max test that we did on a real person. And this is very characteristic of what you see with minute ventilation. Now, if we superimpose cardiac output on this, did, what kind of pattern did we see cardiac output go up in our max test? Was it pretty linear, pretty straight line? Yeah, so it was actually a pretty much a straight line as it went up till we got to their max. Minute ventilation usually has a, a point of departure where we go up in a pretty linear fashion and then it starts to rise more quickly. Okay, so there's a, a kind of a break point or a point where it rises more quickly. This point of departure right here is often called the ventilation threshold. Okay, the ventilation threshold. And we'll talk more probably next time about the, the, the uh, more specific meaning of that. But you guys remember that the uh, lactate threshold that we talked about way back when we did anaerobic glycolysis that was that uh, lactate stayed real steady and then we got to a point where lactate started to increase dramatically. And that lactate threshold was related to um, and helped us predict pretty well endurance exercise performance. Under most situations, this ventilation threshold occurs at the same exercise intensity. Okay, So it's often used as a um, um, non-invasive way of finding out where that lactate threshold is so that you don't have to poke holes in people and get blood out of them. You can just do a max test and measure their ventilation. Okay, So this is the what's referred to as this ventilation threshold is this point here before you get this upward departure. Alright, so VE or minute ventilation pretty linear up to a point and then rises more quickly uh, even though you keep going up in steady increments in exercise intensity, you get a faster rise in minute ventilation. Okay, well let's look at respiratory rate, number of breaths per minute. Okay, so it goes something like this. Is that linear by any stretch of the imagination? No. Um, when, when, you, when you, at lower intensities of exercise, you do see increases in number of breaths per minute, but you see the biggest increases in breathing frequency when you get to high intensities of exercise. Okay? So you get the big increase here towards the end. So there is some increase early on in exercise in breathing frequency, or respiratory rate, but you get the biggest jump 
when exercise intensity is high. When you start getting close to the end of that max test, you start increasing breathing uh, frequency uh, at a faster rate. Okay. Now let's look at uh, tidal volume. Linear by any stretch of the imagination? No. Tidal volume you tend to see go up more early on in exercise and then just like stroke volume, tidal volume typically gets to a point where it kind of levels off. Okay? So when you start exercising, you start walking, then you start jogging, then you start running. Minute ventilation goes up. It mostly goes up because we start taking bigger breaths. Okay? You do breathe a little bit faster, but it mostly goes up because you start taking bigger breaths. Your tidal volume goes up. When you get to a higher level of exercise intensity and you keep going, you sort of you've, you've reached the biggest breath you're going to take. Okay, so you level off on breath size on tidal volume, and you increase your ventilation by ramping up how fast you breathe. Okay. Um, Average size adult probably has a vital capacity. Vital capacity would be the single biggest breath you can take, probably somewhere in the neighborhood of four to five liters over here. Is this anywhere close to that? This is at about three liters. So it's, this is going to be somewhere around 60 to 70 percent of the biggest breath you could potentially take. So with when, when you're at or near maximal exercise, even though it feels like you're gasping for air, you're, you're not taking the biggest breath you can take. Okay? You still have some pulmonary reserve that you're not using. So what that tells us is the amount of air that you're moving in and out is probably adequate, even though it doesn't feel like it. Okay? We probably limit the size breath we take because it is energy inefficient to take those really, really big breaths. So we default to limiting breath size and just increasing the turnover, okay? Taking the breaths faster. All right, so I want to make sure everybody's got that key point. At high intensities of exercise, we are not taking the biggest breath that we're capable of. Okay? We're not taking the biggest breath we're capable of. We limit breath size and increase our minute ventilation by increasing the rate, increasing the rate of breathing. <clears throat> okay. Um, I'll tell you, I think before I completely lose my voice, because I seem to be have obtained some kind of uh, respiratory ailment. Um, I'm going to go ahead and call a halt for today. We will pick up um, ventilation on Thursday and move right on into diffusion on Thursday. So we're making good time. Uh, looks like we'll, we'll get caught up by uh, you know, those last two classes. Okay? All right, so we'll move on to diffusion. Uh, finish up ventilation and move on to diffusion on Thursday.